Did you know that there is a museum, an entire museum dedicated to medicine in the Civil War? Well, recently, the National Museum of Civil War Medicine posted an article on gangrene on its website, Gangrene and Civil War. It says, during the Civil War, a soldier's biggest fear of death was not the battlefield, it was disease. Two-thirds of soldiers, both Union and Confederate, died of disease or infection by the end of the Civil War. Of those who suffered battlefield wounds, gangrene was one of the deadliest. Now, gangrene occurs when insufficient blood makes it down to uh, certain soft tissues in the body, causing those soft tissues to die. Often this is at the location of an injury, like a bullet wound or frostbite or something like that. Usually it's at one of the extremes, like fingers or hands or toes and feet. And in the Civil War, there was a 60% mortality rate for soldiers who were infected with gangrene. And that's why doctors would often respond quite aggressively, amputating whenever gangrene showed up. And in fact, right there at the site of the injury, more would show up. And so that would cause them to cut off, amputate even higher on that particular limb. What does gangrene look like? Well, you, you get changes in the skin from red to brown and ultimately to a purple and a kind of blackish, greenish, and I see looks on faces. Jonathan, why are you going into these details? Well, you can take the boy out of the fifth grade, but you can't quite take the fifth grade out of the boy. But I want you to see this. And, 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 and blisters and sores would show up with, with, with pus and this, this putrid smell. In fact, I have some photos I want to... Just kidding. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? I think it's worth reflecting on for a moment. It doesn't occur at the center of the body, but it occurs out in the limbs somewhere, where, again, life-giving blood can't quite make it. Life-nourishing, oxygenating blood can't make it to those extremes. And then there's a withering a starving, a wilting, little by little, and eventually a dying, and actually a, a rotting out there. That's what it is. And what's interesting is how easily gangrene lends itself to spiritual illustrations. And so sure enough, if you look up at the dictionary.com, you see two definitions for gangrene. The first is necrosis or, or death, of soft tissue due to obstructed circulation. The second, interestingly, is moral or spiritual corruption and decadence that pervades an individual or group. It gives one of those sample sentences. The church body has been afflicted with a spiritual gangrene that is poisoning our relationship with the Lord, the, pre the preacher expostulated. Now, perhaps those dictionary.com authors were reading our passage for this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And in context, Paul is laboring to raise up good workers and tell Timothy to raise up good workers. 
And he's, sorry, he's trying to talk about what godly leadership looks like. And so he's exhorting them especially not to listen to guys who don't get it and guys who kind of swerve and go off in wrong directions. And when men do that, who, who are called to teach faithfully, well, you get a result. What's that result? Look at verse 14 with me. We're picking up from where Tony left off last week, and we'll read down to verse 19. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Ungodly talk, talk that swerves from the truth, will starve parts of the body of blood and oxygen, and those parts of the body will begin to wilt putrefy, rot, smell, die. It's not just a fifth grade boy's illustration. It turns out that's the Holy Spirit's own illustration. He intends for us to meditate on that this morning. There's four points I want to make breaking down this passage for us. Point number one, regularly remind people under you of the gospel. Point number one, regularly remind people under you of the gospel. Now, Tony spent some time last week discussing the importance of reminding and remembering, since Paul says back in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in my gospel. Our, our minds are prone to wander and forget, Tony said, and so the Lord sets up these feasts and celebrations, and in the New Testament, he sets up the Lord's Supper to remember you know, the Lord's death, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Remembering and reminding is a huge part of the Bible and part of our ministry to one another, reminding one another of the things that we have been taught, the things we have been, uh, that we have placed our faith on. And so very often people have, have said to me, thank you for the reminder. And I confess in my flesh, I'm like, well, I didn't tell you anything new. Well, that's an unfaithful instinct in me. A better instinct is like, yes, I'm glad I reminded you of the things that you know. That's what teachers, good teaching does. And Paul begins today's passage with the same exhortation. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things. Remind them. Remind who? Well, remind the teachers first and foremost. That's who he's talking about in context. Look back at verse 2. Tony's to raise up faithful men who will be able to teach others. Okay, remind them of these things, but of course, all of us, remind all of us, ultimately, by extension, of these things. Well, remind them of what? Well, these things. Well, what things? Well, the gospel things that he's been talking about, such as verse 13, if we are faithless, 
he remains faithful. We're to constantly remind one another, teachers especially, are to remind one another of the gospel. In context, he's telling Timothy, the the lead pastors or of this church, to remind other elders and would-be elders, and yet we all do this for one another. Once or twice a month, I get together with Luke over breakfast, and how often does Luke remind me of the gospel? Maybe I'm struggling with something, frustrated with something. Brother Luke is faithful to remind me, Jonathan, remember you've been purchased, you've been forgiven. It's satisfied. He's done his work. Now you can extend that same forgiveness and kindness together. How grateful I am for Luke's reminders. Yet, of course, the point here applies not just to elders and would-be elders, and that's why I've generalized it. Regularly remind people under your care of the gospel. Parents do this with your kids. Members do this with one another. Spouses, husbands do this with your wives. I, I think I've told you the story about my friend Dwayne, who I met at a men's warehouse when I was looking at clothes, and we would get together and we'd read the Bible, and Dwayne went to a prosperity gospel church, so he thought of himself as a Christian. I'm not sure he fully understood the gospel because we would talk about it. So every time we'd get together, I'd say, hey, Dwayne, remind me of the gospel. And he, he would try to talk about it. And, and I used those four words you've often heard, God, man, Christ, response, right? I'd say, hey, Dwayne, okay, what's the gospel? God, man, Christ, response. Let's think about those four words. God, man, Christ, response. God is good. He's holy. He's loving. God, man, he created us good, but we've fallen. We've we've sinned against him uh, and earned his wrath. Christ. Christ came to live the perfect life that we should have lived, died the death on the cross that we deserve to die, and rose again, conquering the power of sin, conquering the debt of sin. So that response, all those who repent of their sins and look to Christ in faith have forgiveness and and life eternal as they they walk together with God in Christ. God, man, Christ response. And and Dwayne and I would repeat that to one another when we would get together. And so here, here if, you're, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Christ. Those, those are the foremost, as it were, important words for you to hear this morning. God, man, Christ response. I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards if you have more questions about that. Now, of course, I'm describing the gospel to Duane in a way that was evangelistic, thinking about the fact that I'm not sure he really gets this. In other conversations that we might have with one another, we're going we're to talk the gospel, speak the gospel in ways that are sensitive and attend to where that person is at. So suppose a, a daughter of mine is struggling with identity and comparison to others. What, what, what am I going to say? I would say, well, sweetheart, first of all, you're awesome. I love you. But second of all, your dad had to learn once upon a time that there's always going to be better people who are better, people who are further along. And if I'm living in the eyes of people, comparing myself continually, I'm going to die in the eyes of people. So, sweetheart, that's not the path you want to go down. The path you want to go down is looking to God in Christ, knowing that He is perfect and righteous, and all that perfection, all that righteousness, all that worth is yours if you are trusting in Christ. Your worth, you have nothing left to prove, nothing left to boast about. You're off the treadmill of 
comparing yourself to others, sweetheart. You're trusting in him. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm speaking the gospel to her in a way. I'm, I'm reminding her of these things in a way that speak to where she's at. Oh, you're talking with a brother. Your, your brother's struggling with shame and ongoing sin in his life. How do you, how do you talk the gospel to him? Well, to the shame, you say, brother, our sins are many. We just sang about but his mercy is more. Do you really think your sin can outstretch the power of his gospel blood? Take hold of that. You've been purchased out of that sin and into life. You can be done with the shame. Keep following after him because you are purchased. You are forgiven. So again, I'm, I'm reminding him of these things. And that's what should characterize our life together as a congregation, those kinds of continual reminders. It's easy for me in those moments just to instruct. It's easy for me just to, here, here's, here's law, here's wisdom. And I confess, I have to stop and think, okay, Jonathan, have I, have I spoken gospel in this situation? Make sure you're doing that, friends. How, how often should we speak the gospel? Well, how often do we sin? About that often. Number one, remind those under your care of the gospel regularly. Number two, commit yourself to faithful teachers and faithfully teaching. Commit yourself to faithful teachers and faithfully teaching. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. God approves of some things a church leader might do. God disapproves of some things a church leader might do. Notice it says to present yourself to God as one approved. It's as if he's calling Timothy to present himself in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that because of what Christ did on the cross in his death and resurrection, he has been justified, he has been approved, and now he is to present himself as a teacher, as one who is already approved. So it's not as if he's seeking to earn that approval. He, he presents himself as one approved, but he is still living in the economy of God's approval or disapproval. That is to say, he should not be living in the economy of what other people think, whether they approve or disapprove or me and so forth. And so sure enough, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. I don't need to be ashamed of what others think or don't think because I am living, working, teaching, as it were, before the eyes of God, living for his approval or not. And so, friends, with you, as you are teaching a Sunday school class, as you are teaching a small group, as you are teaching one another, do it as a workman who is approved, seeking to do so before the eyes of God, not for what people think of you, finally. That's how we are to live. I've learned that fearing what people think will sometimes keep me from saying the things I should say. Interestingly, sometimes, however, it prompts me to say things I probably shouldn't say, or I say them too strongly because I feel like it depends on me. It doesn't depend on the Lord. Maybe, maybe I'll be a little too intense. I've got to control the situation. 
That's just another form of fearing man, not fearing God. Elders, would-be elders, parents, spouses, all of us, work as one approved before the eyes, before the gaze, not of men, but of God. A, a pastor, a friend of mine, tells the story of how an older woman in the church, when he was a young new pastor, an older woman in the church disapproved of something that he was doing, didn't like the decisions that he was making. And one day she confronted him and said, I give a lot to this church. And he said to her, Sister, you don't really want a pastor who would respond and back down to those kinds of threats. And she humbly said, you're right, I don't. The worker of whom God approves is, look at verse 15 again, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed. Did I say the right thing? Did I say the wrong thing? Will it turn people off? Now, we can certainly say the right thing in the wrong way. We can say the right thing at the wrong time. But because we have the Bible, we can say the right thing by keeping ourselves tied to us. And that's what the rest of the verse says, rightly handling the word of truth. And the word right there for rightly handling, translated literally, is cut straight. Right teaching cuts a straight path. I love how David Helm illustrates this. I think I've used this with you, or at least some of you, before. He's talking about the line of Scripture. Faithful teaching stays right on the line of Scripture. Go back to Genesis 3. What is the evil one? What does the serpent say? Well, he takes away from God's Word. He goes below the line. Did God really say? He's not on the line. Meanwhile, Eve adds to God's Word. She goes above the line. Well, he said, uh, don't eat it or don't even touch it. Well, he didn't say, don't touch it. You're adding to God's Word now, Eve. Is there anybody here who will stay right on the line of God's Word? Anybody? Adam, you, you going to stay? Apparently not. Jesus, the new Adam, the good shepherd, came and only said what the Father gave him to stay. He stayed right on the line of the Bible. And now he intends every under-shepherd and every would-be shepherd and every Christian priest, that's all of us, to stay right on the line, to cut a straight path. I think I've also told this story, I've told it a number of times over the years, I don't know if I've told it to you or not, I was the interim pastor of a church in Louisville. The elders were using the three-month interim to test whether or not I should be the full-time pastor. So I, I preached Psalm 1, then 2, then 3, and then I started working through the book of Colossians. After two months, the elders sat me down, and they said, Jonathan, we've decided that you're not going to be the preacher, full-time pastor of this church because of your preaching. What do you mean? I'm preaching expositionally. I'm preaching the text. And they said, well, you're certainly always preaching out of the text, and you read it and you'll say things from the text. 
but you're also very creative. And it's like every week, or at least every other week, you'll, you'll come out of it, but then you'll, you'll say something that's kind of, and you'll make the sermon that's maybe 30, 40 degrees off the point of the text. I remember that, they said 30 to 40 degrees off the point of the text. That stands out in my memory. I, I wasn't staying on the line. I wasn't cutting a straight path. Uh, Emma was one month old. She had just been born. How am I going to provide for my family? Uh, this, is, this is embarrassing. I, I thought I was supposed to be good at this. But how those elders loved me and loved the church by saying, oh, we're going to build this church on, on men who stay straight on the line, who cut a straight path. Those who do that have no need to be ashamed, says Paul in our verse. Maybe there was a good reason that I was a little embarrassed. And as I thought about it, why is this happening? What's going on here? I knew in my heart precisely why it was happening. I knew that I wanted to impress them. I wanted to be thought of as a good preacher. And so every week as I was preparing, I would think, okay, what how can I say this in a way that will really grab their attention? That will be like, oh, we've not, we've not heard it put like that before. And so I'd come into the pulpit and I would preach something that's 30, 40 degrees off the main point of the text. And I, I confess, I remember at the time, my wife said to me, something was strange about that sermon today. And I was like, no, 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 I, I got this. Trust me. How right she was how good she was to warn me as well. Friends, whether you're a church leader or a church member, commit yourself to faithful teachers and faithfully teaching. Point three, avoid foolish arguments, godless teachers, and godless talk. Avoid foolish arguments, godless teachers, Godless talk. Verse 14 again. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Okay, so notice again, he, he wants them to live, wants Timothy to live before God. He says, charge them before God. Do your work in view of him. Not finally before others. And charge them, he says, not to quarrel about words. And the word there for quarrel is word War. Don't engage in word wars. I don't think what Paul is saying here is that we should never work hard to clarify our words or define our terms or, or say to someone, I don't think you're understanding the word here rightly. I read one article recently, for instance, by a friend who was making the case that the word temple in 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't so much refer to our physical bodies, but to us as a church. Now, I happen to agree with them, but suppose I disagreed and I were to push back and say, well, no, no, I think, I think what Paul means by temple is, is our physical bodies in chapter 6. Would I be engaging in word war there by doing so? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that's both of us trying to understand the text. Or, or here's another example. The 4th century Bishop Arius famously argued that Jesus Christ was of a similar substance as the Father. In the Greek, as he would have said it, homoousius. Well, Athanasius comes along and says, no, not a similar 
substance, homo oiseus, but the same substance, homo oiseus. The difference between homo oiseus and homo oiseus is a single Greek letter. Iota, looks like an I. Was Athanasius arguing about not even just words, but letters in that case? Absolutely not. He was protecting a right understanding, an orthodox orthodox understanding of who the Son is and what the Trinity is. So the point is we don't don't ever get into the weeds. Paul's instruction is not, okay, just avoid getting into the weeds and don't argue about, you know, homoousius, homoousius, whatever. That's that's not the point here. What, What is quarreling about words? Well, maybe it starts with arguing for argument's sake. Maybe there's talk of theology, but there's a lot of ego involved. Such arguing, look at verse 14 again, does no good. It's unproductive. doesn't build up. does the opposite. End of verse 14, it ruins the hearers. And then look at verse 16. I think it gives us a few more clues. It It seems to go beyond just arguing for argument's sake. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. And the Christian standard version says, irreverent and empty speech. The KJV says, profane and vain babblings. Okay, so what is is irreverent or profane talk? Well, it is talk that has no concern for the honor of God. One commentator notes, when deep inside himself, man chokes off reverence for God, like blood being choked off, not getting to where it's supposed to go. When deep inside of him, man chokes off reverence for God, he exalts himself with growing confidence and increasing pride. So I'm engaging in talk making arguments, trying to win those arguments. Maybe I'm teaching things. The center of it is my pride, choking off reverence for God. And how easy that is to do in our daily conversations with one another, how easy to do standing in a a place like this, a kind of subtle bragging, a kind of subtle boasting, a kind of subtle listen to me, calling attention to myself. Such talk, look at verse 16 again, leads people into more and more ungodliness. My focus is not on me, not on God, it's on me. I am making people ungodly as they listen to me. Maybe it begins as an argument for argument's sake, but such arguments don't such errors don't stand still. They, they grow. I start saying new and different things. Look at verse 17. Such talk is compelling. It influences. It spreads. It spreads like gangrene. It's talk that stops the circulation of goodness, of godness, cuts tissue off from nourishment, and it leaves those whom it affects to die. It's worse and worse in a life, a group, congregation, 
Verse 18, here's the heart of the matter. It involves swerving from the truth. Word wars, irreverent babble, ungodly talk swerves from the biblical truth. It doesn't cut a straight path. It swerves. It's the kind of talk that leads to excommunication, like, as it was with Hymenaeus. Uh, we know from earlier in the book, which verse 17 mentions. And then verse, into verse 18, this talk upsets people's faith. About 15 years ago, I participated, or I attended rather, a, a Simeon Trust preaching workshop at a nearby church. And if you haven't attended a Simeon Trust workshop, the way they work is typically you have outside teachers coming in to a church, and often the, the, the pastor of that church, who's acting as host, will participate with them in teaching a workshop. And those workshops will focus on one book of the Bible. They'll go through different genres, but this one will be focused on, say, you know, this Old Testament book or this New Testament epistle. In this particular Simeon Trust workshop in a nearby church, focused on 2 Timothy, chapter 2, the very chapter that we're looking at this morning. I remember one of the preachers, I forget who precisely, meditating on that verse, even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. I mean, I can still remember exactly where I was sitting, where he was meditating on that, that glorious truth. Well, fast forward a dozen years, and the host pastor a friend who was teaching from this text, slowly deconstructed his faith and walked away from Christianity. The man who was teaching me about this very chapter. Today he's a communication consultant whose website reads... I spent the first 40 years of my life promoting what I now see as a narrow, controlling, fear-based religion. Today, I'm an advocate for the freedom to change, grow, and walk away from systems and beliefs that no longer fit. Stepping outside of rigid religion, I found there's room for discovery, for hearing and telling new stories, for creating new things in business. And so I founded a creative agency focused on story-driven content. My background in religion has given me an interesting vantage point to think about how longing for purpose and meaning shape human behavior. So he's still saying true things about human life. But, but what is he doing? He's using it to lead those astray. He, he's still leading workshops, quite literally. He's still teaching. His, his website promises to help you own your story, find your voice, focus your audience, express your mid, uh, message, build your platform. Uh, but somehow this poor friend lost the plot. He swerved. He stopped cutting a straight path. Even though he always was and remains good with words. Yet look at our passage to see what the solution is. Well, the solution is a repeated emphasis on God. Verse 14, charge them before God. And verse 15, present yourself to God. And verse 16, irreverent, non-God, babble, avoid that. Verse 19, God's firm foundation, and the Lord knows. This friend somehow, somewhere, erased God from his mental screen, thought he could delete him from the story. 
And of course, even greater tragedy is how he led others to do the same and continues to lead others, assists others in leaving the faith. His talk is like gangrene. It chokes off. It kills. It brings death. Now, I said at the beginning, gangrene often shows up in places of injury, whether a bullet wound or frostbite. Likewise, false teaching, false teachers, often shows up in places when trauma occurs in a person's life, a church's life. In those moments, we become, and you should know this about yourself, we should all know this about ourselves, in moments of trauma, we become especially vulnerable to false teaching. Things aren't going as we hoped they would. Things now feel hurt. Is there an answer for this? Can somebody explain? Can somebody help me understand? I'm, I'm hurting, I'm wounded, I need help. Hopefully Christians show up speaking true words, but you know who also shows up? The devil. A roaring lion going after the antelope that's kind of outside the herd. He knows exactly that's when to come. And so friends, when you are going through, if you're going through a difficult time now or to prepare yourself in the future, when you are going through a difficult time for one reason or another, you are, we are especially vulnerable. Be aware of that. God will have good purposes, I assure you, in those hard times. Wait for him. But the evil one also has purposes for you in those hard times. And very often what we do in those hard times is we kind of push ourselves out from fellowship. We, as it were, push ourselves to the extremities where we become especially vulnerable to other and to false voices. We stay in the dark. We don't talk about what we're going through. And then eventually we're ensnared and we die. And that's what happened to this friend of mine. He went through a season of intense trauma. He removed himself geographically and in every other sense. And once he did that, he started shutting himself off. And once he did that, he started listening to strange teaching. And once he did that, eventually he deconstructed and left. The path is predictable. And so, friend, if you are in a hard time or going through a hard time, the bullet has come through, the frostbite has set in, do not isolate yourself. Speak to brothers and sisters around you. Be honest. I'm having a hard time believing the straight line of God's word in this moment. I'm struggling. Be honest about that. Give us a chance to talk with you. We all, at one time or another, me, you, all of us, need that help from brothers and sisters in Christ. Avoid foolish arguments, godless teaching, godless talk. A few other practical points. Do you enjoy arguing? I confess I do. Enjoy arguing about ideas. And as a young man, I indulge that. And as I continue to grow, I'm learning that's just not healthy for me. I need to cut these things off pretty quickly. I, I avoid those things. I try, at least I work to. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. 
Or maybe debating ideas is not your thing. What might be your version of irreverent babble? What talk causes you to lose sight of the fact that you're standing, living, sitting before a holy God? That might cause you to swerve. Is it gossip? Is it the latest drama at the office? Drama in the house, drama among your friends, drama down the street at the neighbor's house. Drama begets drama. Gossip begets gossip. Be careful about that love of drama. It's self-centered finally, not God-centered. Teenagers, I can tell stories of, I've heard of some of you specifically resisting such drama, refusing to talk those ways and trying to help your friends not to talk those ways. I'm so encouraged by that. Continue in that. And for all of us, I think it's worth knowing our weak spots. When are you most likely engaged or attempted to engage in irreverent babble? For me, it's honestly often late at night. When I start getting tired, I'm having a conversation with my wife or maybe with a friend, and I wake up the next morning and I think to myself, those were some foolish words. Shouldn't have said that. What are, what are your weak spots? When are you tempted to give in? And of course, Paul's concern here is primarily with church leaders, and pastors and elders and would-be elders. And you as a church, who are you looking for in a pastor or a teacher? Are you looking for somebody who's creative and compelling? Or are you looking for somebody who's faithful, going to stay on the line, is going to cut a straight path? That's the most important thing for us. And by the same token, friends, we need to observe what it is, what outside voices, outside books, outside podcast preachers and so forth we are listening to. Am I telling you not to listen to those on the outside? Well, certainly not. That would make us a cult. I would say take care of who you listen to, what voices you're enjoying on the outside. Are those voices themselves under the authority of a church? Are they faithful? Are they cutting a straight path? Are they staying on the line? Gangrene spreads. It's compelling. Take care to who you listen to. Point three, avoid foolish arguments, godless teachers, godless talk. This morning I was, I was using the church directory to pray. How many, how many of you have a copy of this? Go to the website, if you're a member, go to the member section, look through your emails, somewhere in there is a password or email Abby to get that password, print out a copy of the directory, use it to pray for one another. And if you look at the first page, it gives us a number of things to pray for. Pray for God to bless this preaching of his word. Pray also that those who preach would faithfully carry out the task and hold fast to sound doctrine. Pray that our congregation would hunger for God's word and like the Bereans, test everything against God's word. I was praying that this morning for you, for for me. Pray that the spirit would sanctify the saints through the preaching of the word and that our lives would bear the fruit of the spirit. And then as I continue to pray these things, I I would look through your lovely faces and I would think of you and I would pray these things for you. I noticed that Tony's picture is his wedding picture, so he's got a little boutonniere. It looks pretty good. Avoid foolish arguments, godless teachers, godless talk. Instead, pray for one another that we would stay on the line of Scripture.
Number four, and finally, when friends stray, trust God's sovereignty. When friends stray, trust God's sovereignty. Look at verse 19 again. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Notice here how Paul affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this text. He's sovereign. He knows those who are His, which is His way of saying He's going to hold on to them. Don't you worry about it. But we are also responsible. And as it were, need to worry about it. If you name the name of the Lord, it says you should depart from iniquity. And yet I think the emphasis of this verse very clearly falls on God's sovereignty and trusting God's sovereignty in all things. But God's firm foundation stands, it says. It can't be shaken. He's not fooled by these false teachers. His, his church is not going to fail. The gates of hell will not overtake it. The Hymenaeus and Philetuses might show up and say crazy things like, the resurrection's already happened. Which seems to mean they were discounting the body and saying in the spirit they'd already been resurrected. It's hard to know exactly what they meant, but in a way, that's almost the point. False teaching doesn't last. It shows up. It seems like a big deal. Everybody's talking about it. Wait a few years. It fades. Any of you still talking about Brian McLaren, Rob Bell? 2004, 5, 6, 7. Ah, he was a big deal. What's he doing today? As he began to churches have been faithfully preaching the gospel for 2,000 years and they will continue to preach the gospel faithfully until Christ comes back we're doing just fine thank you so much God's foundation stands firm I think I've said this to the young people in here uh, before let me say it again it's sad I have to warn you people who you know new Christians you should know uh, others that you know that are in the church now, that are in the faith now, will leave. They will be like Hymenaeus or Philetus. They will start to believe untrue things. Prepare yourself now. They'll start to believe untrue things and depart. They will swerve. They'll either abandon Christianity altogether or they will adopt forms of Christianity that aren't really Christianity. Paul's predicting this and he's saying to you, the Lord knows those who are His. Just make sure you don't fall into that. This week's passage is a heavy passage, that's for sure. There's no getting around to it. No getting around it. It warns us how easily godless teaching can lead us astray and kill us. Like gangrene. Uh, how much do you, how much do we as a church keep our eyes peeled for error? I don't think this should be the main thing about us. I hope the main thing about us as a congregation is that we are loving, gospel, charity-giving, gracious, forgiving people. Yes, I, I want that to be the primary note in my life, in this congregation's life. Nonetheless, this does have to be a note. Keeping our eyes 
peeled for air. As soon as we start to take that for granted, we become proud, susceptible. Irreverence begins to characterize us. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, Oh, the graces that air has weakened, and the sweet joys and comforts that air has clouded, if not buried. Oh, the hands that air has weakened, the eyes that error has blinded, the judgments of men that error has perverted, the minds that error has darkened, the hearts that error has hardened, the affections that air has cooled, the consciences that air has seared, the lives of men and women that air has polluted. Happens gradually. Pollution. You know, one thing thrown out of the car and then more and then, and then more and then all that trash. Ah, souls, can you solemnly consider of this and not tremble more at air than at hell itself? Beware of air. Point of today's passage. Response, Paul tells Timothy and all the elders of the church and all the members of the church, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't have to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Let's pray and ask for his help in that. Father, forgive us for taking error lightly. Thank you for the ways that I have seen this congregation take it seriously and not depart from it, or not depart from the truth. Help us to stay fixed on the word. Help us to remind one another of the gospel regularly. Help us to rightly handle the word of truth. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.